0: um i'm inspired by this this guest um and that's obvious as as the interview goes on as the discussion goes on i get more and more animated it's almost to the point of fawning um
1: (laughs) oh come on (laughs) at the end you were fawning for sure
0: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: you Um, even admitted it
0: yep 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 It's true. But you'll see why when you listen to this conversation. I mean, ostensibly it starts out as a conversation about a genre of film that people might have mixed feelings about. But the way it felt for me was to see the depth of love and hope and the vision of uh, the world of humanity through Paul's eyes in his writing and his film and then in the way he describes his own life. Like when he starts to talk about his own experience, I just get so inspired when I see humanity, you know, living at that level. And you know, Greg's film experience really helps also with some great questions. You really asked some great questions, I thought today.
1: Thanks. Yeah, that was that was good. That was that was yeah.
0: All right, let's just get into it. Well, before definitely want to recommend that you go and you rent Holiday Boyfriend. Not a holiday boyfriend, but holiday boyfriend. You'll be happy you did. It's a really cool Christmas movie. It's a fun romp. Oh, and next week, look out for our special Christmas edition. Greg and I (laughs) have a special guest and some interesting things planned. It comes out on December 25th. So after you've had your nog and you've opened the presents and that Christmas kind of come down starts to happen, just remember – Moped Outlaws have another ride waiting for you. All you have to do is unwrap it. No? 11, 11, 11, 11. This is no. Levin, levin, This is a vegan, them. you eating your... Two outlaws on the lam. Taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. Ah, ah, ah. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws.
1: Greg and Mark.
0: We're live with another episode of Moped Outlaws, and this episode, I got the first word in before Greg, because normally it's the one who comes in with the introduction. Today, we are so stoked to have Paul Collette, a film writer, a director, an actor, someone who's been through the trenches of developing a career in entertainment entertainment. And whose work appears to have a deep human heart, I'm really intrigued by, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation, Paul. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. And we should say that Holiday Boyfriend is available right now. That's your latest creation, correct? Yep. Yeah. Just in time for the holidays.
2: Yes. It's available on um, Prime Video, and it's also available on YouTube right now for a limited time.
1: Right. I saw, I saw that. I watched it last night. How long is it going oh, awesome. to be on YouTube?
2: Um, I'm not sure. There's certain factors, probably until essentially until Tubi puts it up. Tubi's already licensed it, but for some reason they haven't posted it yet. And we wanted to get it out to uh, the opportunity to be able to watch it, you know, without a fee necessarily. So that's why it's out right now.
0: All right. That's awesome. Um, I did not watch the film, but I did watch <laughs> <Okay>. the trailer.
2: <laughs> there you go. That's enough.
0: That's enough. I'll, you know, everything. Now. I have my own stuff that I have to get done in my life. But I wanted to th- just say, like, during the trailer, there's this moment where the two principal characters are sitting, what appears to be a tour bus, and they're lot looking happy with each other. And their companion says, you seem engaged. You have that bitter aura, which I thought was a hilarious line. And I'm just curious, like, what kind of mind has that insight to human nature? And how do you feel about relationships, Paul?
2: Well, not quite that bitter, but um, but it's it's kind of the um, you can't be that bitter unless you care about each other kind of situation. Um, it's kind of that sort of situation that um, one of the things in their relationship is they've been good friends, but they never argue. And it isn't until it really starts getting like they might be in love that they actually start arguing, which shows that they are maybe in love because they can go that deep personally that they can actually have sincere arguments about things instead of just shallowly being with the other people around them and, you know, oh, I'll just keep my mouth shut and stuff.
1: Hmm. So it sounds like you have a belief and resonance that um, intimacy brings challenge with it. Yes.
2: Yeah. And I think that's some of what this this film engages with.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. So you find that real in your personal life?
2: Uh, yes. You know, um, once you know people well enough, you you want to be able to be honest, right? Yeah. Um, if you're that close to people, you want to be able to be honest and you want to be able to voice your opinion and attitude. And hopefully you can do it as diplomatically as possible. But sometimes if it's someone you love and trust, then you can actually, I guess, um, say the wrong thing and know that you can sort of recover and apologize and stuff.
1: So how does that work for you as a director when you're heading this huge production?
2: You know, it's interesting because um, I I did theater for um, 20 years before I did film and acted and directed in them and built sets. And um, the thing I've learned with directing is um, it's definitely a relationship relationship. With with the actors, it's a relationship with the crew heads, too. Well, all the crew in my case, but um but especially with the actors, it's like your dad. And um that's the way they treat you. And that's the way you kind of want them to treat you. Um And so but you want to build that bond with them so that they know you're interested in. Not sure how to put it, that you're interested in what they think and want and stuff. You sort of, and you can't force them into how you want them to act. You have to guide them there. Um, You know, you want it to seem like their idea as much as possible.
1: All right. So here's the the gentleman who played the cousin, the crazy drunk cousin. Yes. Cousin Damien. Yes. Right. Right. That was such a full character as I was watching him. Yeah. Was that your idea for that character, or did he bring that and you encouraged it? He brought a lot more to it. Um we actually went through
2: we went through five Damiens casting wise. because um, wow. we had a lot of challenges with COVID and stuff. We were gonna be shooting in Thailand originally, and then we were gonna be shooting in London, and then we were shooting in LA, and then we lost a guy for he tested positive for COVID. <sighs> And so then we had to find someone else, and we got Jared. And I was like, uh, we were already shooting. And so I was like, okay, well, I really hope he can pull it off. And so we got together for a quick um, uh, Zoom call, and he just was great. and And he would constantly say on set, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I try something? I'd be, yeah, sure. And he just... Great. There were lots of lines that he improvised that were just fantastic. Like the, the ending at the tree, all of that was just his improvised.
1: That's brilliant. So um, the beer, like, do I have to drink alone again? Yes, exactly. Yes. That's brilliant. Drinking alone, brilliant.
2: That's, that's my life.
1: Yeah, that was a beautiful moment, in a sense. Because here's this guy who you've been seen as just pure debauchery and chaos. Yeah and in that moment there was a real pathos to the moment of yes
2: yeah. but it didn't make you sad right which was one of the key things that i had with a lot of auditioners for the character my feeling was and i'd written out the character really in depth i'm really big on that with the writing um that he you know, no matter what he says, it always feels kind of lighthearted. You don't want him to really get you down. He's there to, to humor things up. And that's the fun part, I think, in directing is finding actors who get the character. They understand what the character is. Um, I'm sorry, I'll walk on here. But since I'm the writer, too, what I did for the auditions is I didn't have them read a scene. Cause I hate that. It's, unless the scene is really good or it fits, it doesn't work. So what I did is I wrote a monologue for each character. Ah. And that's what they'd audition with because I want to see if they can play the character. That's the most important thing. And they would, um, the monologues would really bring out the character and personality and stuff. So how well they did that would tell me if they get the character. And once they have the character, then everything else is fine. You know, we'll, we'll
0: figure anything else out. So I want to turn the attention on you, if I may, Paul. <laughs> sure. um, uh, anyone who is like Greg and I, who who are interested in filmmaking, knows this. But one of the keys to writing is the character descriptions, as you discussed, like really yeah. creating background and a history and a kind of a context for what makes this person tick. So. With the most vulnerability and authenticity, what would your character description be as Paul Colette? Oh, is me the person? Yeah. How would you write that? Um,
2: ah, ah, would probably funny. be um, quiet. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, go along to get along. Hate that one. <laughs> um, and um, terminally optimistic.
0: All right. Do you want to say any more about his background and what informs his terminal oh, optimism?
2: Um, I I don't know. I think a fear of giving up. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. Just, uh, yeah. It's. Um, Yeah, I I don't know how I keep going sometimes, but uh, but you you got to keep trying, especially in the creative world. So That's I I said it that way because usually I try to describe my characters with three adjectives, ah. um, but try to make really sharp, clear adjectives. A great character description is from A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, a tight-fisting. Clutching, you know, nose to the grindstone kind of man. And you're like, you know exactly who he is now.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting um, thing to point out because Scrooge has become a descriptive in our normal dialogue. You know? Yeah. Like when you say you're a Scrooge, you know exactly what (laughs) that person is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: So, what do you think the aspiration is behind your? holiday movie. There's kind of like a hidden hope for humanity there, right? And do you think that's true of the genre?
2: Yeah, um, sort of one of my concerns, me and the the writer and me, I, I, I like romantic comedies um, like Christmas movies too. But the thing that bothered me in a lot of romantic comedies is they don't get um, kind of real about it. It'll be a little dancy, shallow and stuff. But um reality is it it can be it can be difficult and people throw darts at the wrong dartboard, I guess you'd say. And um the things that they necessarily find appealing aren't necessarily what's best for them. A lot of women want to want the bad boy, but then they want to fix the bad boy. And then it's like, "Well, you you said you wanted a bad boy, but you don't. So you're just, ah, so I have friends that have done that. And I keep saying, why don't you see you're looking for something you're, you, you're not picking. Um, and then the life of the party kind of guy, well, he never really gets, you know, uh, intimate and shares his feelings and stuff. Well, yeah, because he's the life of the party. So, um, the, one of the things in that line that I had, enjoyed in this script once it evolved was the the mandy at the beginning of the story <clears throat> is not ready for the nathan at the beginning of the story hmm. neither of them are actually a match for each other at that point they both need to go through a character arc in order to become better people to be more appropriate for each other and that's that's eventually what happens
1: that's interesting that you mention him as well needing to yeah. transform in order to be with Mandy.
2: Yeah. Totally. He needs real. to Yeah. He needs to stand up for himself. He needs to grow a spine. Right. Right. Right.
0: This is the transition from the friend zone, right? Kind of, <laughs> yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. Because you're a friend and you don't want to disrupt the friendship. So you'll sacrifice, you know, your love opportunities because you don't want to screw up the friendship.
1: So I see on IMDb that you have some acting roles that are coming out in 2024 and I don't see anything for writer director. Do you have some projects that you're percolating personal projects? Well, I don't have
2: anything in the works right now. Um, I have other scripts that I'd love to produce, but, um, the whole independent film world is evolving, um, in a very challenging way with, with the massive amount of content there is available. It, it really becomes hard to stand out unless you've got, you know, the kind of name actors that we can't afford. Um, so, uh, we'll see, you know, I need to get, find funding that works best, but, uh, looking at small content possibly in the near future, but we'll see how things progress, you know?
1: Okay. So
2: that's, I've been,
1: well, one thing I'm interested in, I'm going to step on you, Mike, because I've um, worked with a friend and produced uh, three feature films and that Uh element of the business. Yeah. Like we closed our doors because we couldn't do it it didn't happen we lost money financially yeah yeah it's so challenging and it's there's an element of brutality to making a film that it just pushes one's comfort zone way way out yes yeah so what is your passion that's brings you back to it continually um
2: I don't know. Uh, I just, I want to do it. Um, I've definitely decided to take a break after this because of that to some extent. But um, it's having the faith that this one will succeed. Um, This one will get the exposure at least that you want. Um, Some of the things that I've sort of tried to work around or find new direction with is... um, don't focus on the income from the film. Focus on the exposure. You just want, I just want people to see my films when it comes to the bottom line. Um, I need to financially make that possible because I'm not a millionaire. But, um, but yeah, you know, it, your focus is really, you just want to see your art seen, and hopefully it helps other people in some way or another. And that's definitely what drives me. That's what drives me to write them because there's something in me that wants to write this script. And so I have to write it and then, um, and then something will prompt me for the next one.
0: So within that framework of the creative impulse being that sort of, it's almost like a hidden mystery. We don't really understand what drives us, but you just know you have to, as you said. Yeah. What is it that, you bring to those moments of doubt. What do you, how do you push through the struggles and the challenges? What is it inside you that, that has that? And then I have a part two to this question.
2: Okay. Um, boy, I mean, it can get really tough and really dark to be honest. Um, You know, he understands. Feature films especially. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, um, you know, especially like I'd say a few years ago, especially I would be having arguments inside me, like saying you need to stop this. It's not practical. You know, it's not profitable. You need to. Focus your energy on things that make you money or or stuff. But there's that, okay, I think what it is, I'm ah, playing <laughs> psychologist here, but it's that deep personal need to share a part of yourself with other people. Yeah. And knowing that that can be edifying for them. And I think that's the driving force it's I need to connect to people in this way because it's it's what I have it's the gift I've been given, and so i need it's what I have to do otherwise i'm I'm rejecting the gift I'm mm-hmm. denying what
0: I'm best at and I think that's that's a lot of it beautiful and the the follow up question is how does the Christmas movie or holiday movie represent that symbolically, that eternal hope that you have mm-hmm. for the process.
2: Oh, for the process or in the story?
0: Well, you, you just spoke about how you overcome the inertia because there's this great need to c- connect humanity to itself and for people yeah. to see the work. And, and and what is it about the the holiday film genre itself that is sort of a macro version of that? I think there's
2: an ever hopefulness kind of about Christmas, um religiously, you know, because it's because of what it is, you know, for the savior of the world. But I think it's also even going back to a sort of pagan attitude, the celebrations of December was sort of to say, it's okay, the winter will pass. Mm-hmm. You know, and the spring will come again. We just need to hunker down in in the winter, and and the cold will pass.
0: Thank you.
1: Sure. Um, I am wondering, can you share a story of a brutal challenge in making holiday boyfriend, where, in your opinion, a miracle holiday. happened? Oh. So, so many. Um,
2: (laughs) Well, before the end of day one, we were shut down because someone tested positive for COVID. And um, I literally couldn't believe it. Um, And it meant we had to shut down for at least seven days. And... um, I was a bit like, "It's done. We're done. This isn't. That's it. We're done," because actors may not be available for the other days. Our locations have to be rescheduled. Um, my my DP that I had hired that is awesome that I that was um, that was supposed to be my DP originally uh, was stuck in Lithuania because he didn't pass a COVID test to get on the plane. So I was using my assistant camera guy and took over as DP. Uh, And then the, so it was kind of miraculous that we were able to come back. I mean, it was, it it worked out. It just,
0: um, I'm not sure how. Can you just describe the <laughs> moment that, that, can you describe the thing that shifted there was a moment where the dominoes fell back into place. Do you remember what that was? Um, well, my line producer
2: did a great job he He was the one who sort of kept things moving and kept hopes up and uh, rescheduled everybody and everything and it worked. I think the crew actually was a lot of it. The crew was very encouraging, and they were like, Don't worry about it, Paul. We'll be back when you need us. Um, We're on top of this. We want to make this film. And the actors were that way, too. And I think part of that, again, goes back to as a director and producer building relationships with people. Um, Crew, as well, I always had an interview with them because I want to know them personally, want to feel like there's someone I can. Trust and know that I'm on board and care about their needs and, you know, wants and stuff. And uh, same with my actors. Make sure I'm there. You know, if the girls, if someone ever makes the girls uncomfortable, you let me know. Dad will be on it, on top of it and stuff. Um, so I think that was a lot of it. I had a just a great crew and great cast. And I try to focus on that because you want it to be fun to do. And then you know you can rely on them. Um, I had my, um, going off here, but um, my uh, gaffer was also my key grip, um, had done like Clint Eastwood movies and stuff. So there was no way I could afford him. Um, But he wanted to do the film. So he said, don't worry about it, Paul. I technically was going to retire, but... I'd like to do this film with you. So let's do it. And it was great because I could just tell Yogi, can you with the, with the thing and the, and the, and the light? Yeah. Yeah. I got it. And he'd know exactly what was needed and stuff. Um, it was awesome.
0: So there's this piece about a moment of the miracle occurs when the individual chooses that that's a possibility and that's present in the yeah. genre itself. And then it's also present in the human experience of creating the film. There's like this moment where we, as human beings, we just decide, Oh, you know what? There's a way I can't see it right now, but I'm in alignment with that possibility and it's going to show up. And th- there's that kind of naive hopefulness and yes. it actually creates the door opening. Right? Yes. I
2: think naive hopefulness probably, project propels us through a lot of things um there there, there was a time think yogi was the one that said well I'll, I'll mention what he said but that impressed him is on one of our days and one day we had this big house the, the big beautiful mansion okay and it was so perfect and back and forth about we can't afford it. And I was like, I have to have that house. (laughs) I have to make Blake look rich. Otherwise, no, I I can't. It's got to be that house. And we had problems and the people's dog would kept barking. And I was like, we're paying for this place and you can't even put your dog. Oh, anyway, let me let that go. (laughs) But we were getting very crunched to the end of our day. And I kept telling my assistant director, no, no, we'll get it. I'm going to get it. I know what's going on. We're there. And then she came up and said, okay, we have 30 minutes. And we hadn't done the balcony sequence, which is him talking from the balcony and running around and stuff. Oh, wow. And I said, I can do it. I wow. can get it done in 30 minutes. She said, Okay. Um, so I got Yogi, I got my DP and Jan was back by then. And we went upstairs and I got my actors. And I told my actors, okay, you've seen the three stooges follow my lead. <laughs> and, um, and that's pretty much what we did. And we just knocked out bits over and over again. And I fell down a couple of times and slipped and we're all out of breath. But it's like, no, it's just keep rolling, keep rolling. Let's get this other segment and stuff. And, uh, and it worked out and it's, you know, one of the funniest sequences.
1: That's brilliant because that sequence has a very, it reminded me of the Marx Brothers and yeah. that slapstick yeah. energy. Yes. And I imagine having to do that as you did, the energy was built into it.
2: Yes, and we had and the poor you know, both the camera guys are running following us, you know. One's running from in front and the other one's running from the back, trying not to get the other camera in the shot as well. So it was just it was hysterical. And and Yogi said, you know, I've been doing grip and gaffing for thirty years and I've never seen something like that. That was that was amazing.
1: What was amazing as an audience member is it was a beautiful shift in the pacing of the story, yeah, and an appropriate yeah. one. It was like, oh, great, okay, here we go. We're on Thank this you. madcap run. Yeah, yeah, the and it's also, so of course, a bit of a climax because here he is professing his love for her, right, at her engagement is, party. In essence, yes, this is
2: his. This is the peak of his arc. This is him proving. By by doing a public humiliation that he really loves her, yeah, and he, standing up for himself. Yeah.
1: So I am curious because I a notable part for me with the bad guy, and I'm horrible with names, so I'm mm, just going to say okay. But, uh, he's from. This Mandalore Europe? plays Blake. Okay, Blake. Right. So he's from Eastern Europe. Uh, no, he's
2: from Australia. The girl is from Eastern Europe, though.
1: Ah, okay. So he's got to get married to stay in the United States, but he's from Australia? Right. Ah, I missed that. Okay. Are
2: you? Yeah, he's obviously foreign.
1: Right, right, right. And she's from Eastern Europe. All right. See, I thought they both were. Well, there goes my question. I guess my question. Well,
2: it still works.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm... What I was wondering, because your your guy was from Lithuania, and oh, like, that was my camera guy, Right. DP. What I'm wondering is, do you, are you from Eastern Europe? Do yours your like?
2: Ironically, no. Um, I mean, I'm I grew up in San Francisco, and so did my parents. But descendant wise, we're from Sweden. Okay, mostly Sweden and France.
0: All right. Yeah. <laughs> Um wow. I I noticed that your career has been long. Am I right? Uh yes. Yeah. Cuz I was doing some research and finding films from the 70s. Is that not a that long? That might be a different
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's another I've been ball. doing uh stuff since the 90s. Got it.
1: And you were doing stage for 20 years before the 90s? Yeah,
2: well, I started doing stage stuff in 84, 85. Up here in San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, in the Bay Area. Um, We both live in Marin County. Oh, you live in the Bay Area? Yeah. Yeah. Whereabouts? Marin County. Marin County. Oh, okay, cool. I grew up in San Bruno. Okay. What was the show you just mentioned? The broom? The what? I'm
0: sorry. The, uh, uh, you just mentioned a show and I stepped on it when we were talking. You, you worked on the oh, show. Oh, I
2: did, a, I did a show in Peru,
0: Peru. Um, as well, Not a play a, in Peru.
2: Wow. That was fun.
1: So, uh, were you um, ever working with ACT here in the Bay Area?
2: I didn't get a chance to. Um, I, I was with Ross Valley Players. Did a, okay. I think a couple shows with them. That was awesome. Um, Pacifica Spender Players. Um, a few in the East Bay. San Jose Rep. Yep. yep. Um, a few others. I, I lose track. But um, it was awesome.
1: So was did welcome. you move to Los Angeles to start a career in film? Well... <laughs> Not exactly.
2: Um, <clears throat> my day job is a as a computer database application developer. Um, and um, I was working with the Bay Area company. And then that job ended. And I had another contract in Sacramento. And that was a long commute. And then um, I had a new contract in Los Angeles. And it looked promising long term. So I thought, okay, well, then we should move down. So I moved down in, uh, 2001 or 2002 and, um, was already here. So, you know, I pursued more of, uh, more film stuff and TV as I tried to juggle my regular job and family life and stuff. Tricky.
1: Wow. Yeah. So how has your family supported you in this? filmmaking career. Um
2: they're supportive. I involved my sister a lot in productions and stuff. She was my key editor for a long time. Um my brothers very supportive too. My my kids and my ex-wife are supportive too, but not as um not as involved because they don't want to be part of a crew and things. It kind of interestingly goes to the whole thing of, um, well, you're never a prophet in your hometown. That um, at home, they don't see me as a filmmaker because I'm just dad, you know. Oh, that's dad's movie. And they'll watch some of dad's movie, but it's just dad in the movie. So it's not a real movie. And um, it's funny, but it's just your perspective, you know.
0: Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about the genre's budget range? Like I don't necessarily want to know what your mm-hmm. particular budget was or the sales numbers, but as a whole, there's a kind of niche here in terms of what the studios or the the outlet channels, the the broadcasters, pay for this stuff. What's the yeah. general range for a production like this film? Well,
2: five years ago, I'd say 200,000, 250,000. But um, today, I mean, really, in 2023 market, you're really talking like 50,000. That's, that's what you need to be reasonable with. And um, this kind of film can't be made on that kind of budget. So you've got to sacrifice a lot. Um, y- you've got to find other avenues to do it. Either, either other ways to sell. I don't know. You know, it's the biggest challenge today. I think is because of the amount of content. So, for example, Christmas movies. There are some classic Christmas movies that are great. And then there's a lot of crap that the studios put out. And then there's 20 times more crap that have been created by independent films. So if you've got a good Christmas movie, how does anybody find it? They search for Christmas movies 20 times and they find bad ones and go, I'm giving up. You know, I'm not going to try anymore. And that's the dilemma I'm in. I mean, that's the dilemma for, for doing these kind of films now is you're, you're one in thousands that are trying to get people's attention. And you just – you can't stand down. So it's very frustrating.
0: So the range of available funds from a buyer's perspective, you say, is 50K seed money. And it used to be 250K seed money.
2: I, I'd say for this kind of film, you should, I mean, as far as wanting to at least return on your investment, you need to start finding a way to budget for that kind of 50000 wow. you know, shoot in. Well, that's why Thailand was an opportunity because it's a lot cheaper to shoot in Thailand. Um, Los Angeles is just really expensive to shoot in. Everybody's, I don't want to say it that way, but there's a lot of, Crew, uh, cast that are jaded, they've worked for studios, so they expect certain amounts of money, even from independent films. Locations are ridiculously expensive. Um, the film I did uh, earlier, or that released earlier this year, was The Haunting of Hell Mine. And I liked a lot of things I was able to do with it, in that, number one, I talked to a friend of mine who has a farm in Salinas. And I knew her well and been to her farm several times. And so I said, you know, (laughs) I think I can build the mine on your property and we can use your house for the house in it. And that bar that your friend owns, we could use as that bar. Do you think we could do that? Think we could pull it off? And she said, yeah. And so we shot the entire film in Salinas. I built the whole set. And um, we shot the whole thing there, and we brought all our actors and crew up to Salinas and kept them in the same motel. And it, it worked great. It made it even more of a family kind of thing. Everybody was into doing it and stuff and would pitch in and stuff. Never have actors pitch in on crew things, but they were willing to help out and make up or things. So I was like, this is awesome. These are awesome people. So um, I think that's kind of the future of what you can do. You're going to have to have people not be there for the dollar. They need to be part of the film because they want to help out and make it. And they're going to have to be willing to sacrifice financially and stuff to be able to because you just can't make the quality that you're looking for. I mean, you could do it just poor quality, but you know, then is it a product you really want people to see?
0: So right. right. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought up the haunting of Hell Hole Mine. I, I was hoping it would go there because I think the premise of that film is really intriguing. This idea that a Native American shaman has cast a spell over People that would otherwise exploit the mind I think it's a really rich premise, and I'm curious yeah. how how you arrived at that, and did you use any indigenous consultants on, on sort of leveraging the idea behind that? Can you tell us a little bit about that story?
2: Yeah, Rob Trujillo um, was was my was helped me in the directing or helped me in the writing of it, and he's Native American. Um, so we did take certain folklore from Native American and stuff. Um, He helped me create the language that we used for the fictional tribe because we didn't want to offend anybody or anything. But um, the story originally wasn't quite as deep as it became. It was more about the mine and the miners and stuff. And there was some point where I'd been exploring understanding schizophrenia a little better. And what it was, and then it was, well, what if the mine is a metaphor for her brain, her mind, that they're actually fighting demons kind of in her mind? And um, and then it led to the idea of the Native American story of the girl that um, had to basically, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> kind of sacrifice herself for her tribe. And it turned out that it didn't really save them because violence just promotes violence it doesn't really create peace it just creates heartache and the journey she goes through the girl i had who played satinka i mean she was just so awesome um it's funny because i actually had her audition for the uh, daughter or the niece role and she did a poor job (laughs) and i was like okay well i really see it for satinka she did the audition monologue for satinka and I was like, "You didn't do a great job, but you got the part for sure. It's it's in there. I know your personality is there." And uh, she was just so great in it, so natural. You know this this person that is a once you get to know who Satinka is, you realize this monster is just a front. It's just her protecting herself. Sorry, I don't mean to go on and on but there's no that's so what we wanted I about it.
0: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and i was just curious about working with robert Trujillo. i mean we're talking about the bass player for metallica right yes yes that would be him yeah and was um, there any point where he was invited or interested in doing the score no no it's not really him i'm kidding it's,
2: <laughs> oh. it's another rob Trujillo. <laughs> oh thank you oh <laughs> I would have loved to have him though, you know, it would have been cool. Okay.
0: So tell us a little bit about the actual Rob Trujillo that you used. How? What was his role and, and what, what's he, who is he and what's he like as a person?
2: He's a very sweet guy. Um, he wasn't super involved, just a little involved in the script and the writing and stuff, especially to make sure we were, you know, sort of kosher about our Native American references and things and stuff. But one of the things he talked about that he brought to the script especially was the um, Native American tribes that fought other tribes before white men even came to the West that some tribes had even been annihilated and we, we're not familiar with. And just that there was a lot of struggle and challenges in the Old West, even even you know, with the white men propelled things worse, of course, but um that was going on and it was kind of this he thought it would be good to not be the distraction that it doesn't become the cliche oh white men are to blame for everything Mm -hmm. it's that bad people are to blame for bad things it doesn't matter where they're from
0: i love that bad people are to blame for bad things and violence doesn't actually help us solve anything yeah yeah
1: i skimmed through the film and as I recall, and that was, I think, when we first booked. And as you mentioned off the air, we booked a while ago. And, yeah. Um, yeah that's- um, and I recall there's an element of a Native woman and a white man are in relationship with each other. And this curse is in the way. Well, here's what I guess what's more important. Oh. What I'm recalling is there's a healing at the end. Yes. Oh, yeah.
2: Okay. So the healing at the end is Satinka. So the girl in the mind, the one we think is the monster most of the time, she's called Pandora. And she's a blonde girl and Caucasian stuff. And so they think that's really the monster's base personality. But it isn't. It's still a cover for who for the real one. So she also poses sometimes as the. um, uh, As the sheriff and she'll even pose as people because she poses as Don at one point and throws off um, Luke. Um, But it isn't until the end that you start discovering that Pandora was a friend to the real Satinka, Native American girl. That was it. And Pandora was killed, but because she'd been someone, she a little pioneer girl that she had respected admired so much, that was the persona she became. And then it's this beautiful moment at the end with Satika as Pandora, which again is the same person, looking at each other and realizing what she's come and that that's not what she wanted to be. And then sort of coming together until She wants it to. She actually wants it to end. She wants it to be over.
1: So it seems like there's an element of self consciousness in that healing process. Like she sees herself as the monster. Yes, and realizes that's not who she really is and really wants to be. So there's transformation. Key is a big part of your story telling yes,
2: yes, there's a lot of people I think that led to this one. There was a guy a guy I knew who was a criminal um he was a rough guy, lots of tattoos he um he'd done a lot of bad things uh, rape and and killed people and stuff so and um And there was this opportunity, I'm trying to keep this little story short, but he's a fascinating guy. But um, he reached a point when something happened and a garbage truck was about to hit a little girl. And he jumped out and pushed the girl away and was run over by the garbage truck. Luckily, the, the wheels didn't hit him, but he was under the garbage truck. And the mother was so grateful. And um, it was that, how can this be the same person? You know, someone who would have done these horrible things still be someone who would sacrifice himself for a little girl. And that moment in his life transformed him. He changed completely because it was like, this is who I really am. Wow. That guy who did these awful things that 's not who I really was. I was pretending to be someone to be tough to be able to endure life and the frustrations and difficulties. Um, and so i I found that so inspiring that that i i 'm sure is what affected the you know plot for the story
0: I see a thread in your work, which is this insight that you just shared about this person in his life but that is reflected pretty much everywhere in the way you tell stories, which is this idea yeah. that if we, if we actually reveal the thing that we keep hidden the most, the humanity at our core has this aspirational quality to it. It has this gateway to the, the beauty of relational joy and, and, a healed world. And I think that's the answer to the tough question I asked you before about why you keep doing this, which is that that truth is an undeniable truth that always need that. We always need humanity be reminded of. And I just want to acknowledge you for your commitment to that truth, to that aspect of storytelling, because we look to these things, these ways of storytelling in the modern era to remind us that underneath our fear, underneath our resistance to being human beings is this incredible treasure. And I think that's what Christmas movies do and, and other movies that you've described. They, they, they remind us to go for that difficult aspect of self because that's where yeah. the miracle awaits.
2: Yeah. I, I think, I think the thing I've really loved about writing and acting is, Well, through this saying um, of when you're on stage is not when you're wearing the mask. It's when you step off the stage. And that's what I really enjoyed about acting and writing is because you there are no mistakes. There's just reaction. Um, Just let yourself be free to react and live within that moment, whatever it is and how it is as long as you know the character and stuff. And it's so liberating. It's so wonderful.
1: Okay, so what did you, Paul, learn about yourself through creating the character Nathan? Um, <laughs>
2: uh, well, yeah, I started this one a long time ago, so um, it was learning to stand up for myself. It was learning to grow a spine for sure. Because the original draft, Nathan didn't. And he was a little whiny about, well, why doesn't she like me? You know, I'm, I'm being the good guy that she wants, the kind guy. But she want, she. it's natural that women want a man who will be able to defend them. And if you don't stand up for yourself, then they don't think you're going to be able to stand up for them. Even though it's not necessarily that way, Spider-Man's a good example where he didn't stand up for himself, but he would defend other people. But, um, but yeah, that's I realize that that's really what Nathan has to show. He has to be, he has to stand up for himself. Otherwise, he's not worthy of her, or, or he's not going to be happy. You know.
1: So it sounds like you have had a personal journey of um, coming to terms and peace with your own masculinity.
2: For sure. Yeah. Every every script definitely has, it gets interesting because I'll start having scenes or pieces or characters that come to mind, and I'll be okay, I'll throw those away, I'll write a little bit down, but I never start a script until I know how it ends, because hmm. otherwise you don't know where you're going. And um, I will then find an ending and be... Great, we can start. And I'll be writing, and as I'm writing, I'm discovering, and I have to keep mining for treasure. And eventually, I find out, oh my gosh, this is what this is really about. <laughs> this is this is something about me. And and then you step back, and some writers are like, I don't know if I want other people to know that about me, so maybe I don't want to finish this script. Um, that's where it gets it gets scary because you've got to be willing to share that piece of yourself um, so the people understand because it's not a good script if it's not a piece of yourself I think painters were that way too if it wasn't personal then it wasn't worth painting
0: yeah you said a mouthful brother (laughs) (laughs) that was some real stuff right there Uh, holy mackerel um I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. And just as a reminder to the audience, it's Holiday Boyfriend, not A Holiday Boyfriend. Don't get it twisted. Correct. Yes. Yes, I know. I've been fighting
2: them for, yes, ever since started promoting, it was like, oh, great. A Holiday Boyfriend is all over the place. But, uh, you know, there's always going to be one with your name. so.
0: Right. It's it's holiday boyfriend and it's the haunting of Hellhole Mine, if Correct. you wanna go there. And then I may you know, I was doing that parallel research with the other Paul. So is Shark <laughs> Island coming out? And do you star in Shark, Shark Island? Shark Island
2: is coming out. I am in it. I am a producer on it. Um it it's had a lot of challenges in post production. Uh, but we we should be out in uh, early next year.
1: Awesome, and the then Wild Track
2: has... will be coming out next year too. What? Wild Track she'll be coming out next year too.
0: And that's another film that you are involved in. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's um. Yeah, I'm the dad. A girl goes to Southeast Asia to backpack across Southeast Asia to find herself and disappears.
1: Hmm. So are you the father that's looking for her?
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Are you producer on that as well? I'm producer on that as
2: well. And I'm, I'm the supervising editor.
1: All right. So why did you choose not to direct those two productions?
2: Oh, well, there was a different director chosen in each of those cases. Really. They, I, I sort of bought onto the project as a producer, um, with a director involved. So that was fine. And honestly, in a way I'd rather not direct if I'm acting because, you know, that father relationship thing, it gets confused <laughs> because then you're a brother and a father and then actors will think, Oh, well, if he can say something, then I can chime in and stuff. And then you finally have to have your AD stand in and say, there's already a director here. So thank you, but let him do it. But, um, there is another story that I hope to have produced and come out which is a Christmas film. I I know I don't have it but but it's written and it's great and I want to talk about it a little cuz it's called um The Last Mile or Cratchit's Last Mile.
0: Wow. And it's
2: kind of a sequel to A Christmas Carol. Oh yeah. And that it oh, yeah. in that it follows afterwards and Tiny Tim turns out to have The illness was not really fixed. He has an illness that's very serious, and the only doctor that's doing research on it is in Moscow. And again, this is 1846, which is a very tumultuous time in Europe. So Bob Cratchit has to take his son across Europe in winter to Moscow in order to save his life. Wow. Wow. And we I always felt like in A Christmas Carol, there was a lot of depth to Bob Cratchit that didn't get to be explored because he took everything that happened in life and still stayed, you know, optimistic and strong and kind. And I felt like that's we really need to explore that. We need to see how far he can be pushed and see what that and you know how Tiny Tim sees him in that regard and stuff. So that's uh, what the film explores, and I hope we can make it. It's it's really I really love it.
1: I hope that so, comes to be. That'd be awesome. Uh, are yeah? Are you committed? So if anybody to out there wants
2: has the money for a budget, I'm totally committed <laughs> to making it. it. and
1: there's the rub.
0: <laughs> you bet. Yeah, or so, we'll find a way to shoot it for less. <laughs> How much would you like? Like an optimum budget? Just claim it right now, Paul. You're well, gonna get this much. How much do you need?
2: Really, a million because it has various locations, and you got to deal with snow, and that's a challenge and stuff. Um, it could probably be done for five hundred, but if you had a million, then you can get a good name like, um, like Colin Hanks would be awesome as um bob cratchit i think um, but you know you could do it right but uh, i'd totally be willing to try it for 500 or 300 or figure out what i can it's just a matter of logistics i've i've so thought about trying to write it
0: down but anyway we're going with a million cuz this is a yes. concept worth exploring at it the really highest is. level uh-huh. yeah yeah I'm thrilled for thank you for sharing that. I've got dreams of sugar plums dancing in my head just at the prospect uh, nice. <laughs> of getting to see that story. I mean, I love that premise. Yeah, That's we did amazing. a lot of
2: Charles Dickens research on it too. So the characters would be authentic to his style. There's characters from his other shri- stories that are in there. So they're not that name, but you know, if you know Oliver Twist, then. You look at this kid, and you're like, "Yeah, that's Oliver Twist."
0: Yeah. So, so are there like any that. licensing issues that would come up in the production? Do you have to?
2: Luckily, not because everything of Charles Dickens is considered a public domain.
1: Hmm.
0: That's beautiful. So that at least that hurdle is not <laughs> insurmountable.
2: Yeah, yeah. We might have people argue, "Well, it's not authentic. You know, it's not exactly Charles Dickens, and you you can't you can't write you know." the master's work and I'm not trying to, I'm just tributing sort of to him, to the great work he did and sort of his style.
0: Well, I have Uh, faith in you, Paul, that if your heart is in that story, the way it sounds like it is, we are all going to be blessed when it comes to fruition. I hope so. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hope so too. Is there a working title for it?
2: Oh, the last mile. La, the Last Mile I like, um, a, a Christmas Carol for Tiny Tim, hmm. um, but Cratchit's Last Mile is kind of my favorite.
1: Yeah, I do like that. I like the emphasis on him. It's how far can
0: you go. Right, you know? right, right. Your right. father,
2: what you're willing to do and sacrifice for
0: your children. Yeah. I've got a great idea for the second act. Bill and Ted show up in the um, telephone oh, booth. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
1: hey, yeah. but speaking of comedic elements, I also want to say I loved the boss in uh, Holiday Boyfriend with the cubicle. <laughs> yes, and, Mr. Dell. Yes, yes. And him treating the cubicle like an office. Yes, the door. Good. You caught it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. His invisible door. And how all the employees respected it. You know? <laughs> yes.
2: Yes, they have to knock. Otherwise yeah. he won't hear that they're there, know that they're there. Even but, though there's but, an invisible door.
1: Even at the yeah. end when Nathan has a spine and he's challenging the boss, he still respected the office. Yes. Slams the door at the end yeah this brilliant. is just
0: another example people of how independent film that's done on an economical budget does not mean cheap ideas we are talking yes. high level yes. heart-centered very miracle forward-thinking ideas paul congratulations on having one of the great imaginations it's such a blessing to talk to you well thank you
2: so much i appreciate it. it's been awesome being on your show
1: well, thank you. Now, we do have one final question, but before okay. we do, the B-roll in Holiday Boyfriend, <laughs> I was loving. Is that all Los Angeles locations? Um, No, actually. Uh-
2: um, I I scoured stock footage sites, and okay. it drove me insane because there's like, I know exactly what I need, but I can't find it. And so much of it is always for commercials or industrial training things. And you're like, no, take the girl out of it. I don't want her standing in here. Just give me the shot without her. It, uh, unfortunately, it was all that. My, my DP, Jan had said before, we can shoot some stuff. Um, and I was tempted to, but LA is so. Sue Happy or whatever, Uh, you know, if you're standing out in front of a building taking a shot of it, they'll come out and complain or something and saying you don't have rights to that. So, like, I don't want to run those risks.
1: Well, the beauty is you guys created this fantastical wonderland of lights. It was, I was like, oh, my God, I want to go there. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of it was actually Europe. Oh, my gosh. That was brilliant. All right. So, Anything else, Mark, before our final question? Yeah, I just
0: want to say that it's possible that Holiday Boyfriend could have a Christmas miracle. If everybody hears this and sees this, shares the film, and buys it on the platforms, it could help Paul make Crotchett's last mile. Crotchet's last mile. So remember, keep the faith. Believe in miracles. Your heartwarming Optimism is the food we all Need yeah. and I think I've Done you. being on the, the You know the red soapbox Right now with the Christmas lights <laughs> But yeah we have one more question Paul
1: Alright okay. so the appropriateness Of this question always varies But here it is it's very important To us all right. M&M or Foo Fighters Oh Foo Fighters Ah. Wow. <laughs> you want to elaborate on that at all Uh um, not
2: really no, right. just
1: just like a more
2: yeah
1: all right paul thanks for your time very happy new year to you
2: thank you thank you to you too and merry christmas to everybody and uh enjoy the season recording stopped